The following message is copyrighted by Westminster Theological Seminary. Duplication, distribution, or other use of all or any part of this message is not permitted without prior written consent. Please direct your inquiries to communications at wts.edu. For all other information, please visit the main website at www.wts.edu. The birds stand for something besides birds, <laughs> okay? But it's the, you know, the outreach, the outstretch of the rule of Egypt and Pharaoh. Then Ezekiel 17:23, on the mountain of heights of Israel will plant it. It will produce branches and bear fruit and become a splendid cedar. Birds of every kind will nest in it. They will find shelter in the shades of its branches. What tree? What is this? Well, look, it's quite a long context. I'm not going to develop it all. But it's an allegory of a tree representing Israel, and then it's cut down but they, and, and it, because of its unfaithfulness. But there's a little uh, sprig taken from the top and replanted. Verse 22. Tender sprig from its topmost shoots and plant it on a high and lofty mountain. And then it becomes... What? Well, a great tree. What does it stand for then? I think this is the eschatological kingdom of God context, basically. Exile is the destruction, you see, and then you've got um, this uh, restoration into a great tree. And when you read that language of the birds nesting under it, compare it with Daniel and with the other place in Ezekiel, it looks like this becomes a Again, the picture for the greatness of the kingdom. Well, now look, we've got twice in the dream in Daniel 4 and then twice in Ezekiel. And these are the Old Testament passages that, that focus on birds nesting in branches of trees. It becomes, and you say, well, you know, is that significant? And this is, this is part of the question of interpreting parables, isn't it, right? What do you make of that? Is, did Jesus pick up on this? But you see, it begins to fit, right? Because if this tree in the New Testament now is standing for the kingdom of God in its greatness, in its outreach, then it does begin to resonate with these earlier usages. So it looks like, to me, that there is some illusion, although it's, you know, the point of the parable may not depend so strongly on that that you would... You know, what if you missed the illusion completely? Would that destroy it? I don't think so. So I don't want to make too much of that, but it's significant. Now, what do we do with this? We've got a number of details. The one other thing that I would bring in, and this I can't fully justify from this passage alone, is a broader principle with parables that over and over again, they, they refer to things that are happening in Jesus' own ministry earthly ministry. Not every one of them, but many of them. In Jesus' healing ministry, perhaps particularly because the immediate preceding context is this healing of the woman on the Sabbath. And if you're saying, what is the relationship of that healing on the Sabbath to this parable? If the parable speaks not simply of a general principle for all time, but has to do with something that's going on 
during Jesus' earthly ministry. With that much to start with, perhaps something can be pieced, pieced together from the Old Testament, from the immediate context, from the context also that everything is headed up to the crucifixion and the resurrection. And I might say the theme of the kingdom of God, which is clearly present, if we develop that for en far enough, would I think point in the same direction. You could put it this way. Small beginnings are not to be despised because they can have great endings. But it's not just a general principle. It's a principle that Jesus wants applied to his own ministry because the kingdom is present and at work, but in a manner which does not impress people. You know, they're looking for the full-grown tree, as it were. Right? We know what a kingdom is. It's something like Nebuchadnezzar. It's something like Pharaoh, king of Egypt, that's ruling over the known world. Jesus' ministry doesn't look like that somehow. <laughs> See? Right? And if he heals a woman, is something nevertheless happening there? I mean, it's spectacular maybe as a miracle, but it's also creating problems. So part of the issue is, how do you view the ministry of Jesus, particularly when it doesn't match your expectations, if I'm speaking to Jews in particular, it doesn't match what you would envision for the final kingdom of God. And Jesus, one of the points then is that God can be there and be at work even when it is not uh, unmistakably visible to all, right? In fact, it may be rather tiny and unassuming in some respects. Now, there's also something here, I think, that you could say about this particular parable in terms of the way it catches people's attention. And this is a thing we'll look for later. Good preachers often will have at the beginning of the sermon what I call a hook. It's something to catch people's attention lest they fall asleep after the first paragraph. <laughs> uh, so, you know, begin with a story, right? Human interest. Or you begin with some provocative statement. Uh, my wife, Diane, was discipled by R.C. Sproul. And she can still remember, and this is you know, something like 30 years later, uh, she could, Sproul was teaching a, a college Sunday school class at, out in Cincinnati. And he would begin and say, uh, God is not the father of all mankind, and we are not all brothers. Let us pray. <laughs> and he would pray, and then he would proceed. And Diane, when she started going to that class, she was not really a Christian, and she was a humanist, and she said, oh, you know, this is ridiculous, right? Everybody knows that the God is the father of all, and we're all brothers. And then by the end of the class, Sproul was great at <laughs> tearing apart, <laughs> you know, uh, bad ideas. <laughs> By the end of the, uh, the uh, class, he would have just demolished that. But he got people's attention, right, because here is something <laughs> that, that many people are going to argue about. Well, the attention getter in this parable is the first line. The kingdom of God, well, he asked two questions. I mean, that's already getting your attention, right, of what do you, what do you think? What would you compare the kingdom of God to, Okay. And so people are going to be thinking my mind, in their mind, I would compare it to a vast conquering army. I would compare it to the light of a sun. I would compare it to the power of the sea. It says, it's like a mustard seed. <laughs> right? You know, that, that already is like, what? <laughs> right? That is, that is breaking out of the mold. 
That's absurd. That's an unpromising beginning, even to this parable, right? Of saying, you know, nobody can start a statement about the kingdom of God that way and expect to, to you know, convince anybody. But by the end of the parable, you begin to think, well, wait a minute. <laughs> okay, so the mustard seed does become a big tree, and there is this Old Testament stuff about the big trees representing whole kingdoms. Even the eschatological kingdom of God in Ezekiel 17, you know, if you really sharpen your Old Testament. And so, but, but what's happening, you see, is a certain dynamic where the parable itself almost acts out hermeneutically the feeling of unpromising beginnings, small and, you know, really implausible beginnings. And then, you know, it comes to something. It becomes something when you think about it. So, you know, the same thing, this is the, one of the ironies about this parable is that the parable itself almost acts out its own message. And I think the parable indirectly then is a parable about well, it's about Jesus' ministry, right? In certain respects, it takes people by surprise and isn't what they expect. But it's not only about Jesus' ministry, it's about Jesus' parables, right? Because this is an unexpected form of teaching, too. And often, the parables seem to be a little bit off, um, keep people off balance. So they themselves start sometimes with a way of that may be unpromising and lead to an end that is different than what you expect. And this particular parable seems to do it. So we can also almost draw it like this, that we've got Jesus' ministry, which is clearly in focus. And this un and the elegant, I think, are helping a little bit. I don't want to overemphasize that. But the whole context is helping a little bit to say we've got a situation where the kingdom of God is already coming. And Jesus has overtly said, and John the Baptist said, the kingdom of God is at hand. So Jesus' ministry, well, let's draw a larger circle for that, all right? The ministry as a whole, including the healing ministry, and then the parables, and then this particular parable. And you can say, Jesus' earthly ministry, as we later find out, is of a piece with an even larger process, and Luke extends into Acts then, of an age of extension of the kingdom to all nations. And the all nations thing is implicitly there, isn't it, right? If you think of the Old Testament background, this idea of these enormous world kingdoms like Nebuchadnezzar and Pharaoh, as well as the Ezekiel one. And, of course, Acts works that out explicitly. And then in Daniel, even, Nebuchadnezzar's kingdom is a kind of foil for the stone cut out without human hands that fills all. That is, fills the whole universe virtually. The kingdom of God finally does. Right? And that's in part of the implicit background of Jesus' teaching on a kingdom is things like Daniel was looking for a final manifestation of the kingdom of God. And Daniel makes it very clear that the stone is going to fill everything. It's comprehensive. Now, on the one hand, what have you got out here? You've got 
God himself as creator and redeemer and consummator as pictured in Daniel. All the in a way that is sort of self-reflexive. That is, that points back to itself because it is itself an instance of the very message and principle that it's talking about. Now, anytime you've got something referring to itself, there is a sort of extra difficulty in interpretation because you say, well, you know, it's like the sort of snake teaching its tail kind of thing of, well, you know, how do you get a final meaning? You get a final meaning by going to the utterer. There's a sort of mystery factor here. And the mystery factor is enhanced, of course, by the very fact of, you know, how could anybody come up with this kind of picture of the kingdom of God when, you know, everybody else is thinking of conquering armies and, you know, these gigantic things. Mustard seed, right? You know, that's extraordinary. But underlying it, you see, I would claim is Jesus' own messianic consciousness of he is God incarnate. And that is not being said overtly yet at this point, but it's presupposed in what's going on of the unity of this one little tiny instance of the kingdom of God and the gigantic instance of God filling all things with his power at the end. Now, what am I getting at at all this? Well, the point for the disciples of Jesus, and here's something a bit of application. The point for the disciples of Jesus at the time is partly that the small beginning is not to be despised, to have confidence, to be patient. The point for the Pharisees, for the opponents, is partly you think this is foolish. You think that this is out of whack if a woman is healed on the Sabbath, although that's been challenged by saying, wouldn't you, uh, wouldn't you loose uh, even your uh, animal, right? The, uh, now where was I, Luke 13. If you look back to the argument of the crippled, crippled woman, uh, don't you untie your ox or donkey, verse 15, right? So that it's already been refuted there, but in effect there's now a larger challenge of reconsider what your attitude is toward what you're seeing. Even if it seems unpromising, if it seems not to be right, don't count it out. And... If you think that it is foolish, you're in danger of being left out of the secret. Now, this comes out in other parables more forcefully, but basically, uh, you don't know what's going on. And for the person who thinks he does, right, because he's a religious leader, because he's an expert, that's particularly dangerous. Can we ourselves, in our day, be like the disciples, or like the Pharisees, or like Jesus, even, right? So you. Start putting yourself in here. Now, this is the danger is that it becomes an exemplary sermon, right? You're operating, I've talked about that in hermeneutics, you're operating just by moral examples, good or bad. But I'm not altogether against that, though I don't think that should be the main point. I think we are bound to reckon with how human stories get us engaged, right? Stories involve us, and we're bound to reckon with that at least as an aspect of the total of what's going on. But we also ought to ask ourselves, even if we say, well, in some ways we're like the disciples or like the Pharisees, what about the uniqueness of this particular kingdom work? How, what Jesus is doing in his own day and what God is doing now, reckoning with the differences. 
Now, I'm not ready to, you know, say everything about that. Uh, I think we'll be learning the rest of our lives about that. But I think that Jesus himself as mediator is a key um, to the continuities and the discontinuities. That is, that Christ is in fundamentally the same yesterday, today, forever, as Hebrews 13 says, but that also his ascension makes a difference, and we will come back to that. He is the unfolder, the one who unfolds the mysteries of the kingdom both then and now. So we pray for his enlightenment as we continue to reflect on the scriptures. Uh, a further link that helps us is themes of Luke. Uh, prophetic ministry, for instance, is an important theme in Luke, including the theme of the prophets being rejected. Uh, it occurs also in other gospels to some extent, but certainly... Uh, there. The Jubilee theme of release that comes out in the uh, incident in the synagogue at Nazareth. Theme of the work of the Holy Spirit. All of these uh, can be significant. Well, I'm going to leave this particular parable at this point, and we may come back to it sometime. But we're going to go on to talk about principles. So uh, if you're keeping a detailed outline. Let me try to help you. So the, this was the introduction. B, general principles for interpreting parables. One, the challenge of parables. There are two challenges at least. A, why teach in parables? If you were Jesus, if we may say this reverently, if you were Jesus and you knew that you were the Messiah, and if you knew the things that Paul, for instance, knows about the nature of salvation, would you have chosen to teach in parables? My first impulse would be just to blurt it all out. <laughs> right? Look, people, I'm the Messiah, you know. Just tell it to them. Why does he do this? Yes, Jules. Well, we're going to, I want to ask the questions, right? And you, we'll, we'll take our time working around. Um, uh, B is the what of parables. Given that we have these parables, how do we interpret them? How do we deal with something like the parable of the mustard seed is fairly short, you know, it's only really two verses, right? And we have the aid of this other neighboring parable of leaven to help us. What, but what do we do with these things in terms of, of uh, assessing their meaning? And uh, then that leads to point two, ma uh, major point two under B, uh, of two interpretive extremes that have cropped up. That of extreme elaboration, well, before I get to that, let me quote Dodd about this, simply this how of interpreting them. Dodd's book, The Parables of the Kingdom, pages 11 to 13, Dodd is a critical scholar. I can't recommend him in every respect, but we are going to interact with him to some extent. He says this, but the interpretation of the parables is another matter in distinction from their authenticity. He writes saying most New Testament scholars would acknowledge that the parables are authentic, that is, that they actually go back to Jesus. This is a distinct mode of teaching that he used. I think people would, most people still say that to a certain extent, although they would be much more cautious than, than Dodd. Uh, about that and think that maybe there was a lot of elaboration and extra things thrown in, some of the skeptical ones among them. Um, but the interpretation, as opposed to the authenticity, 
is another matter. Here there is no general agreement. In the traditional, traditional teaching of the church for centuries, they were treated as allegories in which each term stood as a cryptogram for an idea, so that the whole had to be decoded term by term. A famous example is Augustine's interpretation of the parable of the Good Samaritan. A certain man went down from Jerusalem to Jericho. I'm still quoting Dobbs, by the way. Adam himself is meant. Jerusalem is the heavenly city of peace from whose blessedness Adam fell. Jericho means the moon. It's, that's Yareach uh, in Hebrew. And signifies our mortality because it is born, waxes, wanes, and dies. Thieves are the devil and his angels who stripped him, namely of his immortality, and beat him by persuading him to sin and left him half dead because insofar as man can understand and know God, he lives, but insofar as he is wasted and oppressed by sin, he is dead. He is therefore called half dead. The priest and Levite who saw him and passed by signified the priesthood and ministry of the Old Testament, which could profit nothing for salvation. Samaritan means guardian, and that's etymologically, right? Samaritan means guardian, and therefore the Lord himself is signified by this name. The binding of the wounds is the restraint of sin. Oil is the comfort of good hope. Wine, the exhortation to work with fervent spirit. The beast. <laughs> Are you enjoying this? <laughs> the beast is the flesh in which he deigned to come to us. The being set upon the beast is belief in the incarnation of Christ. The inn is the church. <laughs> where travelers are refreshed on their return from pilgrimage to their heavenly country. The morrow, that's the next day, remember where the Samaritan gives, leaves, the morrow is after the resurrection of the Lord. The two pence, two coins, are either, <laughs> he's hedging his bets here, either, <laughs> either the two precepts of love or the promise of this life and of that which is to come. The innkeeper is the Apostle Paul. <laughs> the supererogatory payment, remember he gives extra, is either his counsel of celibacy or the fact that he worked with his own hands lest he should be a burden to any of the weaker brethren when the gospel was new, though it was lawful for him to live by the gospel. That's from Questionis Evangeliorum 2.19, slightly abridged. Then, Dodd continues in his own voice. This interpretation of the parable in question prevailed down to the time of Archbishop Trench, who followed its main lines with even more ingenious elaboration, and it is still to be heard in sermons. Now, this was written, I think, in the 50s or before. I don't hear. Maybe it's the circles I travel in. I don't hear much of this, but it's somewhere out there. It probably still exists. Uh, uh, okay. Now, so that's uh, still, if you're developing your outline, under 1B, the what of parables. Dodd has certainly raised the question, right, of is the, this line of interpretation of Augustine Trench and others fundamentally correct? And uh, though we laugh at it, um, you know, I'm going to challenge you to rethink uh, some uh, of what's going on there eventually, but we're going to work a while on other things. Then, 
uh, well, let's state directly the two extremes. The extremes are, and this is small b under your outline, ma'am, of extreme elaboration, where every phrase or even word of the story has a distinct allegorical significance. And you can see this, right, where you get down to the details of the beast and the innkeeper and so on. Uh, the second extreme is uh, that of simplification. From stemming largely from uh, Adolf Ulicker, uh, Ulicker says, there is only one point to each parable, and that one point easily discernible, easily available even to the uh, fairly dull uh, listener. Uh, and this came in, the chief uh, sort of person who started off this is, as I said, Adolf Ulicker. I've spelled the last name for you there in your outline even, a book called Die Gleichnisreden Jesu, The Parables of Jesus. Uh, second edition in particular is a definitive one from Tübingen, 1910. 1910 then. Uh, near the beginning of the 20th century, and before that, as Dodd says, pretty much this uh, earlier approach had been the dominant one. Now, uh, give you an example of that. Mark 4, 3 to 9, the parable of the uh, sower and the four soils and the four seeds, remember that? Um, Ulicker, volume 2, page 536, says this, quote, according to higher laws, the word of God must reckon not only on conquests but also on being put down. That's the point. One point. Dodd summarizes the single point theory as follows. This is page 19 of his book. Quote, the typical parable, and he does agree with this now, the typical parable, whether it be a simple metaphor or a more elaborate similitude, that is two verses long like the, you know, or less, some of them single verse, like the parable of the mustard seed, or uh, some fully developed stories like the, well, the parable of the sower, parable of the lost sheep, uh, both of those, or a more elaborate similitude, or a full-length story, presents one single point of comparison. The details are not intended to have independent significance. In an allegory, on the other hand, each detail is a separate metaphor with a significance of its own. Okay, so there's the problem, and we're going to run out of time uh, on uh, about that point, but a point three is what is a parable? Uh, before we even obviously have to wrestle with this, these two extremes and, and some things in between. But we also have to wrestle, what exactly are we talking about, right? What, um, scope, what is the scope of this, even within the Gospels, let alone do we want the word parable to cover other things, uh, maybe in other parts of Scripture, as well as the parables of Jesus, okay? Now, this is important because some people may obtain the single point of theory by something of a slippery definition of parable. If by definition a parable is a single point, then you've got a circular argument, you see, right? So it all, what do you mean by this? If you mean by parable something with a single point and you call anything else an allegory, then, we're, then we've still got to, you know, we haven't settled anything, right? So that's one of the problems to confront us. Uh, uh, and number, it would be then B under this, is we have a certain word in the scripture, parabole, from which the English word is clearly derived, and which word is often used 
and it's typically what stands behind the English translations used parable. But that's not the whole issue either. Part of, part of it is, what does this word mean? But also more broadly, are we dealing with something like a family resemblance? In other words, there are a group of things that are like what are explicitly called parable I. Not everyone may be, not every instance may actually be explicitly called this. How do we judge whether it is or not, right? And even if we have this word labeling some of them, what, uh, what does that signify in terms of the interpretation? Well, I have to come back then. Well, we left off uh, last time under uh, Roman numeral three, and then B, general principles for interpreting parables. And uh, three is we just barely got into what is a parable. And uh, the fact is we have this word parabole in Greek that is sometimes used in the scripture, but there are other things that look similar to the things that are actually labeled parabole. And uh, so it'd be a bit artificial just to go <laughs> by the word and not look at, as it were, the underlying unity of a number of different things in Jesus' ministry. Uh, the gospel writers make no claim, in other words, to make sure that they use this word every time they've got something in this category. So there are family resemblances, as it were, uh, among a number of different discourse and sayings of Jesus, and we're interested in understanding those uh, whether or not they specifically use the word parabola, although that can obviously be uh, a starting point for us. Now, an additional difficulty is that, as, as usual, we don't know whether Jesus spoke mostly in Aramaic rather than in Greek, and even if he spoke in Greek, it was within a context that was influenced, as it were, by uh, the Semitic background of the people whom he's addressing. And there are two Semitic words, Hebrew mashal, and a corresponding Aramaic word, metal, in the, uh, in the construct, matla, in the, uh, the absolute form. So essentially the same. And uh, tav in Aramaic can often correspond to a shin in Hebrew, if you're wondering about that. Uh, and in both Aramaic and Hebrew, this word means something like a figurative saying, but even that is not quite broad enough for it, or a striking, pithy saying. It would include, for instance, what we would think of as a proverb. In fact, mashal is often transferred as a, tra translated as a proverb. But again, that's, uh, that's a little bit narrower. Pithy saying, you see, is, is what is close to being a proverb, but it can be figurative. There's something that needs uh, thought and, you know, often short. Uh, but the fact is then that, that this is probably this kind of thinking and the broad category is probably what's underlying the Greek, whether it's a translation word or not. 
uh, it's probably a pretty broad category, broader even than what we think of, you know, in our naive modes of thinking. We think of the parables because they're such a distinctive element in Jesus' teaching, and you know, you get a sense of what a parable is just from the accumulation of these things. But in fact, you know, the word is broader. And then, in terms of spe some specifics, I can give you illustrations that, it, that start with something fairly small and end with something which everybody would clearly recognize uh, as a parable. Uh, for example, uh, and I'm going to use a number of different words here for it, uh, if you want different sizes. The problem is the size, partly. Uh, for small ones, there's sometimes in English called metaphors, simply, uh, and in German, Biltwort, an image word. Luke 6.29, if someone strikes you on one cheek, turn to him the other also. If someone takes your cloak, do not stop him from taking your tunic. Well, even if Jesus had not said in verse 31, do to others as you would have them do to you, it would be fairly clear that these things are specific. They're almost little vignettes. You know, they're little pictures of something that is a broader principle. They're metaphorical pictures, though they've often been taken by, uh, you know, some people as being sort of... Uh, very technical rules which you would obey to the letter, but I don't think that context warrants that. Do to others as you would have them do to you. With a bully, it's not always the best thing just to give in to him. So you gotta think beyond the sort of uh, knee-jerk kind of obedience as if this were another law, you see. I don't think it's a law. I think it's, it's a picture of the kind of thing that would uh, respond in love to something that's not very lovely. Uh, Luke 6, 38. Give and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, we put into your lap. For with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Well, you see, for the first century, that's going to call to mind trading in the marketplace and literal issues of uh, measuring out, you know, a bushel of wheat or whatever. And, uh, you know, do you pack it down and put some more in? That, you know, that makes the customer feel good. <laughs> But that's, ob again, obviously not simply to be applied on a literal level, right, but much more broadly. So it becomes one of these little pictures of a broad principle. Well, is that already a parable? Uh, most, many of us, I think, naively might be nervous about it. Uh, but the fact is that the first example I gave you does begin to be a story, right? It's the beginning of a story. It doesn't develop but someone hits you on the cheek, right? And now you've already got a problem, right? You've already got a story potentially coming out of that. Luke 6, 39, he also told them this parable, can a blind man lead a blind man? Will he not both fall into a pit? That's the end of it. That's not a very long parable. It's actually called a parable in this case, you see. But it's not, it's much shorter, and it's, again, barely gets going as a story and it's over. It's just a little comparison, one-liner. And then 40, a student is not above his teacher, but everyone who is fully trained, we like his teacher, obviously related. But again, you know, one of these pictures. So uh, that has been, by some of the analysts, been called metaphor or biltvort. Here's another one that's slightly longer. A similitude, or in 
German gleichness, which is a comparison. Luke 6, 41 to 42. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when you yourself fail to see the plank in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the plank out of your eye and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. Well, that's a little longer, you know. It's developing a picture at a little more length than what we've seen. Uh, Luke 6, 43 to 44. No good tree bears bad fruit, nor does a bad tree bear good fruit. Each tree is recognized by its own fruit. People do not pick figs from thorn bushes or grapes from briars. The good man brings good things out of the good stored up in his heart, and the evil man brings evil things out of the evil stored up in his heart. For out of the outflow of his heart his mouth speaks. Well, you see, the verse 45 is clearly a, a, a proverbial a mashal type of observation, but the comparison with the tree gives it more of the flavor of a comparison. Uh, so what do we do with this? Uh, that people have called a similitude. And then third, if you in this list, and this is all under, uh, if you want to maintain your coherence in your outline, it would actually be A, B, and C, right? Because it's under what is a parable. So A would be the, the uh, metaphor, B would be the similitude which you just given, and C would be full-blown parable and German parabel. And you can see they too are building, in this case, Greek loanword clearly is what you've got in German as well as English. Um, 648. It is like a man building a house who dug deep, down deep and laid a foundation on a rock. When a flood came, the torrent struck that house but could not shake it because it was well built. But the one who hears my words and does not put them into practice is like a man this, you see a comparison right there, like a man who built a house on the ground. What's the difference between that and the other one? The distinction is between a present tense verb structure, which travels through the thing, which you had in uh, 41 and 42 and 43 to 44, and a past tense verbal structure, which you find in 46 through 49. I say, does that make a difference? I, and I wonder sometimes whether it does, but that is one of the differences that has been said to distinguish these two. I don't think it's a really very significant difference. But the tendency, I think, with a longer story, if we go to, I mean, if you don't think this is a full-blown parable, you can always go to Luke 8, 4 to 8, the parable of the sower, which is quite extended story, five verses, or the parable of the lost sheep in uh, Luke 15, 3 to 7, or parable of uh, two sons, uh, the parable of the lost son, or parable of the prodigal son, we usually call it, in Luke 15, uh, which are then more extended. And you will find that those are in past tense. The more extended ones tend to be in past tense. Why? I think there is something of a psychological reason that the more detail you get into a story of this kind, the more it seems like uh, that the uh, storyteller is thinking of a particular case, right? So uh, a, a man had a hundred sheep. Well, not everyone has exactly a hundred sheep. And then one gets lost. Well, not everyone you know, loses one and so on. You're thinking, you're picturing a particular case or so the story of the laborers in the vineyard where they're hired at different times in the day. You see, well, not everybody does that, right? 
and especially at the end, not everyone buries them all at an <laughs> So when you get something that sounds like a particular story, it's appropriate to narrate it in past tense. On the other end, when you're talking about something which could occur again and again, as with a good tree bearing good fruit and a bad tree bearing bad fruit, then it's appropriate to put it in present tense, both in Greek and in English. The present functions as your it's nomic, meaning you're, you're, that's the way you speak a general truth. Okay, so it's just true in general for any time you go out and look that a good tree would bear good fruit and so on. Uh, so, but my, you see, I, I think that's then a legitimate uh, observation to make that you have this subtle difference between present tense use as, as your sort of uh, kind of backbone of the story versus uh, past tense. On the other hand, I wonder whether it's all that significant in the end, right? Because it's a natural thing to change the tense when you get a more specific story. But obviously, this story is, is serving the purpose of doing something theologically, right? So the degree of elaborateness of the story is, looks to me like something of a secondary issue. Not that it's totally um, you know, irrelevant, but it's not the kind of thing that you want to make the basis of category A, which is black over here, and category B, which is white over here, right? This is a difference, but it's a difference what looks to me like something there are more common elements between these two than there are distinctive elements. Because it's a, it's a secondary effect of the fact that with a more elaborate story, uh, you will feel as if it's a one-time occurrence rather than simply something that occurs again and again. Okay, so we've got three levels, partly in terms of this difference of tense, but mainly in terms, as I've seen it, the elaborateness of the story which is being generated. And then at the other extreme, and this is now point uh, D, would it be? Yeah. Below the level of a metaphor, which would be more like a full metaphor, is what I call, this is my invention because nobody else labeled it, elusiveness with an A, I'll loose. All right? Meaning you're alluding, you're, you're stimulating a connection of thought. But just in passing, you don't develop it even as a metaphor. Look at this, Luke 6, 20. I'm dealing many of these from the Sermon on the Plain, but you could go here and there, elsewhere, in Jesus' teaching and find such things. Uh, Luke uh, 6, 20. Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Well, you who are poor, what is that? It's addressing the disciples, looking at his disciples. Aren't there other poor people? What is it, you know? And of course, Matthew has poor in spirit, which I think may be a different occasion, but may be, in effect, drawing out the significance of what Jesus intended here. But the comparison with literal poverty is already elusive, elusive for one thing to the Old Testament and the Psalms in particular, where you have this language of the poor or the oppressed, ani and ani, those Hebrew words. Luke 6:23. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy because great is your reward in heaven. Well, leap for joy. You see that, that you get a picture, right? It's vivid. It's, it communicates. It's probably hyperbolic, although, I mean, it may be taken as literal, but most people don't 
feel like leaping for joy when they're persecuted. <laughs> so he's, he's underlining it, but he's also giving you a, a picture. And uh, Luke 13, 32. He replied, go tell that fox. I would drive out demons, so on. I'm pausing at the fox part because there's a little allusion to, you know, a comment about what kind of person Herod is. Uh, but just in passing, not really developed, not more than one word. Luke 21, 18. But not a hair of your head will perish. All right, again, vivid hyperbolic, you know, that kind of um, expression that is, that catches people's attention, that's memorable, all kinds of things going on there. But again, it, just in one line, it's a, a sort of thing. And by the way, if you have read Spurgeon's sermons, it's uncanny. There's, there's, it's the kind of thing that one, I don't think one could easily reproduce in a written manuscript, even if one tried. And Spurgeon, the record bi biographically of Spurgeon indicates he didn't write out his sermons. He didn't necessarily plan them in detail. But he comes with one turn of phrase and one metaphor after another. It's just, you know, obviously a talent which he has, and it's, it just grips you by the, you know, the sheer color and force of the speech. I mean, it was good content too, I'm saying, but... <laughs> But the fact is, the Lord gifted him in that area. But it's something of that quality that even, I mean, Spurgeon did tell stories illustratively. But even when he's not telling stories, it's a sort of overflow of a, a kind of metaphorical thought mode. And, and it's something like that in the case of Jesus, even when he's not saying, okay, well, now let me think around and find some story to illustrate this point, you know. Even when he's not doing that, uh, there's this sense of... Um, these uh, elusive turns of phrase. So, what do we conclude from all that? I do not think that there is a sharp boundary here. <laughs> that is, between this sort of minimal thing, maybe even only a single word that, that more vividly makes a picture in your mind, between that on the one extreme and the obvious story parable that we're all familiar with, like the parable of the prodigal son, that that represents something of a continuum. Even though we may put labels on the things for our own convenience, there is something of an organic unity here in the way they function in Jesus' own teaching. Okay, that's than point three, and the point is that's going to make it a little more difficult, at least for people who want to have everything in not nice, neat boxes. Uh, there is such a thing as a parable, but it grades off into things that are, you know, less full-blown, right? Okay, number four, the usual distinction of biblical scholarship between parable and allegory. I'm bringing this up because you will find this uh, in major scholarly works even up to this day in some of them, that the two terms parable and allegory are used now, as opposed, you see, I've used the term parable, right, in, very, in a broad sense to cover all these things that Jesus is doing, right, and saying grades off into the things like that. Scholarship has used the words parable and allegory, that is biblical scholarship, 
uh, in the 20th century, it's most them used, mostly used them in a very specific way. Namely, in an allegory, every detail has a specific symbolic meaning. In a parable, there is only one major point. For instance, and this is true of scholarship broadly, but also to some extent of evangelical scholarship, Kistemacher's book on parables, page XV in the preface, he accepts this distinction with some qualification. But I believe that this definition of the distinction between a parable and an allegory is unworkable and confusing for three, four reasons. <laughs> First, and uh, then, well, this will have to be A, right, uh, in, in the critical interaction with this distinction. A, it is not based on any obvious distinction familiar in the ancient world. In other words, the ancient people were not thinking in terms of, well, is this one major point or is this an every detail situation? Such a distinction, for instance, is not obviously present either in the terminology. Parabole and mashal that we've looked at are quite broad, are capable of covering allegories that are quite elaborate, are capable of covering simple metaphors, are broader actually than either of these words in, in modern scholarship. The terminology in the ancient world is broader. And neither is the distinction clearly, uh, uh, does it uh, operate in terms of clearly distinguishable classes or genres of material. If you go into the ancient world, not only into the Bible, but there's, the rabbis have a certain amount of this and try to separate it out, it's not immediately clear. Now, you could try to impose the distinction, but the question is, is, is it imposed, you see, on something where the people themselves are not thinking in terms of this distinction? So that's first uh, objective, uh, point of objection, A. B, this distinction between parable and allegory has little relation to modern literary critical terminology. That is, outside of biblical scholarship, if you go out into English literature and, uh, and uh, uh, critical discussions there, then that's not the way the terms occur there. Since, for one thing, it eliminates from the category of allegory what everyone has called allegory through the ages. For instance, Pilgrim's Progress. That is the classic example that people refer to as an allegory, and indeed it is an allegory by the definition of, you know, that literary criticism would use. But it does not, in fact, give distinct symbolic meaning to every detail. In description, for instance, page 125 of my edition, of Beulah Land, the description is quite elaborate. And as far as I can see, he's not intending that all these delightful things would each be, you know, have a separate symbolic meaning. But it's the general impression of the sort of grace that God gives and the blessings that he gives to his own people. Jotham's allegory, Judges 9, 8 to 15, does not give independent significance to the olive, the fig, and the vine. There are three examples of, of trees that reject the invitation to be king over the other trees, but, you know, and each has its own reasons, but, but you know, they don't stand, they, the whole thing is allegorical for, uh, is it, who is it? It's Bimelech who wants to be king. Right, and Abimelech is the bramble, that's clear, but who is the olive, the fig, and the vine? There's, you know, there's no, and er, again, everybody considers that an allegory. That is, the, you know, the standard literary reaction to it is an, is an allegory, but not every detail has independent symbolic significance. 
So the fact is, you see, that they've used, they've defined the word allegory in a way that makes it, there are, virtually are no allegories. You see, that is not a very helpful way to define it, is it? Right? Because that's not the way the world uses it. And you've made it artificially easy for yourself, you see, to reject one pole, right, by making, defining it in a very extreme way. Uh, C, third uh, criticism of this is that it is the matter of elaboration of details. That is, how many details have an independent uh, symbolical significance. The, this issue of how much you elaborate in terms of the uh, symbolic significance of detail is really a question of a continuum. It is a matter of a degree of elaborateness that is difficult to measure precisely. And in this connection, then I would call in the, what I regard as pretty decisive argumentation from um, Madeleine Boucher in her book, Mysterious Parable. Um, and uh, let me quote a little from page 34 and then from page 35. And bear with me, and I know I've assigned this as a reading, but I want you to be clear on, on um, exactly what point I think that she's making that's the most valuable. This is picking up from verse, uh, verse <laughs> from page 34. The first example, the weeds among the wheat, Matthew 13, 24, 30, is followed by a point-by-point -point explanation, verses 36 to 43. In the parable itself, the wheat and the weeds stand for the righteous and the wicked among men, the harvest for the coming of the kingdom, the winnowing for separation or judgment, and the fire for the final punishment. From these constituent meanings, See, here's the details. The hearer apprehends the meaning of the whole, that the righteous and the wicked are allowed to dwell together in the world until the end of this age when they will be divided at the judgment. The second example, the unmerciful servant, Matthew 18, 23 to 34, and these are both obviously full-blown parables, right? Uh, these is followed by a brief explanation which summarizes the whole parable, quote, so also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brothers from your heart. Verse 35. Nevertheless, it is also possible to give a more extended, detailed interpretation of this story. The king stands for God, his servants for men, the debts for moral transgressions, the settling of accounts for judgment, and imprisonment for punishment. It is out of these constituent meanings that the whole meaning emerges, that God will forgive us in the measure in which we forgive our fellow man. Now see, what she does is very nice, I think, because she takes parables for which there is an interpretation given, although that interpretation, in the case of the, uh, uh, the weeds in the field, is often rejected by critical scholarship. But she says, in fact, if you're just looking at this thing literarily from the standpoint of what uh, the, the details and the whole, the details, it's out of the details you get the meaning of the whole. And then she summarizes page 35, there is then literal difference in the number of tropes in the component or micro meanings in these parables. Tropes being the, the matches between saying, now these, you know, the weeds stand for the wicked, right? Naturally, longer parables are apt to have more tropes than those that are shorter, but the difference is negligible. The parables then cannot be distinguished on the grounds that some have many points while others have one point. In fact, all are made up of constituent meanings comprising the meaning of the whole. 
it is indeed more accurate and helpful to speak of the meanings of the whole parable and of its constituent meanings than of one point and many points. While this suggested category may not dispel all difficulties in the interpretation of individual parables, it does set them in the proper framework. Again, in the case of every parable, the discerning hearer perceive both, perceives both the constituent meanings and the whole meaning, all of which are closely interrelated. In the case of every parable, it is possible to give both a detailed interpretation of the component parts and a summary interpretation of the whole. Therefore, the assertion that some parables can be judged inauthentic merely on the grounds that they are complex is unfounded. All the synoptic parables, which happen to be quite alike in this respect, have equal claim to authenticity. Okay, now, the fact is then, what I'm saying is that to talk even about something be defined in terms of whether it has many points or details is a false antithesis. You see, it, it pretends to distinguish things that, in fact, it doesn't distinguish. <laughs> because Boucher's pointing out, it is both the case that there is one main point, there is a point to the whole, and that there are constituent micro-meanings, she calls them, or constituent meanings, you see. And so the whole distinction is a distinction which doesn't distinguish, in fact, fogs up, because you think you are distinguishing, you know, two different kinds of stories. In fact, you're not. So the sooner this gets out of New Testament scholarship, as far as I am concerned, the better. <laughs> it is just you know, been a fog that I think has confused people's thinking. And finally, objection or criticism for, uh, D for this distinction, that is, in New Testament scholarship between parable and allegory, has been invented and imposed on data in a polemical reaction to the extreme elaboration of parable interpretation in church history. Now, this, that is not to say that the extreme elaboration is right but it's to say you've got to take the things case by case. You can't just dismiss them, right? And in reaction against them, I think there's been, a, in fact, an overreaction, you see, for scholarship to claim, well, in fact, the parables have a single point. But the, what's happening is it uses a waffly sense of parable, because this really is not a clear definition. It uses a waffly sense in order to bias interpreters toward finding only a minimal meaning in each parable of Jesus. You can see also rather good discussion, I think, in Leland Riken's uh, book, How to Read the Bible as Literature, a considerable discussion of parable. And again, Riken, you see, coming from a literary background, does not have these hang-ups, <laughs> right? And it's very refreshing to read because for him, the whole thing is clear. It, it isn't burdened with this artificial distinction. Okay, so one thing I'm advising you is not that you can't use the words parable and allegory, and I'm going to define eventually. <laughs> I'm going to make some definitions that, that you can use, but not to use them the way most of 20th century scholarship at least has. Now, I think we may be on the way to recovery <laughs> from this, although it's been a long time in coming. Uh, but you will still find some of this confusion remaining within a scholarly world. And so you've got to, every time you encounter these worlds within the world of biblical scholarship, you've got to ask, what do they mean? Now, outside of biblical scholarship, as a word, the rest of the world has not got hung up. <laughs> it's, a, it's a kind of uh, paradox, but anyway. 
So you have to still be careful, you know, for the next decades uh, when you're reading the material to ask yourself where it's coming from, uh, particularly if it doesn't define clearly what it means by key terms like parable and allegory. Okay, so now, ready? We're going to give some technical definitions, which are internal definitions, as it were, to us to help us think clearly without necessarily claiming that they would be imposed uniformly on the data of the New Testament. Whether or not the New Testament is doing, you know, matches these categories is up to it, <laughs> right? But at least we can be, you know, straighten out the modern terminology a little bit. That's what I'm trying to do at this point. So here's number five, some suggested text, technical definitions. I've written them out for you so you don't have to copy them down. Uh, but I'll read them and discuss them a little bit. A metaphor is a statement with two levels of meaning. I mean, this is rather inelegant, right? It's clunky and, you know, you can tear it apart on, on literary grounds, but I'm trying to be clear at least. <laughs> a metaphor is a statement with two levels of meaning in which an analogy between two diverse subject areas is exploited in order to say something about one area in terms of comparison with the other. Now that does, I mean, there's been tons and tons of discussion about metaphor, and I'm sort of taking a position here uh, that is, Aristotle had a view that it was just an improper use of the word, and if you replace the word with uh, uh, another word, then you would have a purely literal statement. And I think that's oversimple. I think that, that there's innately a kind of comparison so that the thing is more interesting and richer in some ways than a literal statement would be, which doesn't mean that you can't glean out of a metaphor a literal, a literal statement, which is roughly equivalent or at least captures some of its meaning. Uh, Jeremiah 2.20, for long ago you broke your, your yoke. It's a metaphor. Why? Because there's a comparison between two areas. On the one hand, Israel in relationship to God and obedience to the God or disobedience. And on the other hand, animals and putting farmers who put yokes on them to have them work plowing and, and doing stuff, you know, pulling carts and things, okay? So there's a comparison between two areas. Luke 13, 32, go and tell that fox. That's a metaphor, right? Herod compared to a fox. Luke 6, 39 that we had before forget what it was. He also told them this parable, can a blind man lead a blind man? Will he not both fall into a pit? Comparison between blind people and what? Uh, religious teaching and, t you know, reception of it. Uh, something is said about one subject using a word or words from another subject on the basis of a similarity or analogy between the two subject areas. You exploit that similarity and you invite readers to think about the relationship between those two things. And it may be, you know, even though you can summarize the main point literally, it may be it's a little more open-ended because you think, well, you know, in what ways is this religious teaching like blind people? And, and uh, you, you have to think a little bit about it maybe to see all the implications. Okay, second definition B, a synecdoche is a statement where a part of a thing is used to stand for the whole. Hosea 12.2. The Lord will punish Jacob for his ways. Well, maybe that isn't a good illustration because you could say Jacob is the name of the people of Israel and, and that point and not Jacob, the literal 
son of Isaac, right? Uh, but you could treat it as a synecdoche and say, well, Jacob, because he's a part of, you know, this entire group of people. Uh, Luke 6, 29, to him who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other as well. Why is that a synecdoche? Because you might literally be called on to do that, but obviously that is only one case, right? It's only a single instance of a whole set of practices in responding to people who do nasty things, okay? So it's one instance, a part. Synecdoche has two levels of meaning, the meaning as applied to the part and the meaning as applied to the whole, but these levels are related in a different way than with metaphor. It's not analogy so much as it's part to whole, all right? In one instance to um, a great many other instances. Now maybe the instance of the hitting on the cheek is not so good because you really do have to have analogous instances, but you might say, okay, it's just the general principle of returning good for evil, right? And then any number of instances of which this is one. So, Sure, the difference between a synecdoche and a metaphor may not be airtight, but I still think it's useful up to a point in terms of the kind of comparison. Is it one instance? And what I'm leading forward to is actually, I think the parable of the Good Samaritan, though it may do other things, it starts out being a synecdoche because you're using one concrete instance of, of doing something loving in order to illustrate the general principle that people are to do something loving. See, it's one instance. Okay. Third definition, a figurative or tropical, tropical, sorry, I think it's pronounced rather than, you know, it's not having to do with the tropics, but it's having to do with tropes. A figurative or tropical saying is a saying with two or more levels of meaning. What's the difference between that? It's the larger category. So if you want a little diagram, Figurative contrasts with non-figurative are right over there. And then there's at least two divisions, actually more. But metaphor is one kind of figurative saying, and synecdoche is another kind of figurative saying. So there are subdivisions, and figurative saying, or tropical saying, is the larger category, at least in my definition here. It's the opposite of a non-figurative saying or plain saying. D, allegory. Ah, an allegory in my book is an extended metaphor and narrative form. That's close to what Boucher says in page 20. For example, the lost sheep, parable of lost sheep, Luke 15, 4 to 7. The parable of the banquet, Luke 14, 13 to 24. Think about it, right? Here you got two levels related by analogy, shepherd and sheep versus God and lost sinners, right? Or the parable of the banquet, you've got the person who gives the banquet, you've got the guests who come, that's one. And then by analogy, God who gives the sort of the final feast uh, of the consummation. <laughs> Luke 14, 16 to 24. Uh, the parable of the mustard seed, Luke 13, 18 to 19, because the growth of seed to tree is compared to growth of the kingdom of God. <coughs> I believe my definition is close to the literary criticism, secular literary criticism, their use of the word allegory. Fairly close to, you know, it was their use and to 
people's normal understanding. And as we've noted, biblical studies has tended to draw the distinction in another way. Namely, an allegory being a case where every detail has a distinct symbolic meaning. That isn't how I defined it. It need not be every detail, but there is going to be a relation between a sort of meaning on one level and the, what it symbolizes, right? So the idea of symbolic meaning is I'm agreeing with, but I'm not insisting that every detail be carried over because practically no allegories do it. You know, it makes it an empty category. Okay. Now that's my definition. And E, an exemplary story is an extended synecdoche in narrative form. So you see here I started with metaphor and synecdoche, right? As two forms of figurative saying. And now if they're extended, if they're in the form of a story and it's more extended, that is, you know, extends out to uh, more than one sentence typically, then you're dealing with an exemplary story. Example, the parable of Good Samaritan. But you see how you know, the scholarly world that said Jesus is, is speaking parables, not allegories, that is not just not a useful <laughs> distinction. Because they are. Many of them are allegories, but not all of them. And there's nothing, I think this thing came into existence. I can't, I can't trace all of the dynamics of the thing. Uh, though Adolf, Adolf Euliker, as I say, in his book on the parables, is one of the formative instances, and he's reacting against you know, an excessive amount of detail being uh, thought to have you know, symbolic meaning and so on. And so he reacts, but in the process of reacting, he, he generated, not by himself, but uh, anyway, generated an excessive fog, I think, in terms of people no longer uh, talking plainly about what was going on. So the parable of the Good Samaritan is an exemplary story in that it is one concrete instance of loving your neighbor then which serves as then uh, to symbolize the general principle that is the broad thing. You see the whole is love your neighbor and the part is love your neighbor in this particular case. Rich fool, the parable of the rich fool, Luke 12, 16 to 21 lays up treasure, but is not rich toward God. See, that's a concrete illustration. Again, you're not dealing with things like, oh, sheep standing for sinners. The rich fool stands for a rich fool. Right? <laughs> but he's one instance, a concrete instance, of you know, a much larger group of people who are thinking this way. Lazarus and the rich man, Luke 16, 19 to 31, again, appears to me to be an exemplary story. It takes an example of two different people, Lazarus, and the rich man, right, as examples of the sort of thing that may happen to people uh, not only during this life, but then, of course, when they die and Lazarus is carried by angels to Abraham's bosom. It's an example, concretely, of a general principle. And then, definition F, a figurative or tropical narrative is a narrative with two or more levels of meaning. So again, you get this same diagram see, but now on the level of an extended narrative and say, I've got a general category. I'm just trying to, you know, be symmetrical and nice and neat. <laughs> but uh, we've got clear categories here. Allegories and exemplary stories then are both subcategories of the larger category, figurative narratives. And now finally, G, a parable is a figurative narrative functioning for the purpose of religious or ethical persuasion. Now that's a dangerous definition because that isn't exactly 
equivalent to parabole or mashal, either one, which we've already observed is probably, well, the parabole depends to a certain extent on how much it's influenced by its Aramaic and Semitic uh, background. But I think it's uh, almost certainly a large, even larger category than this one. Certainly larger, I would say, because figurative narrative is a fairly, it's only these extended ones, only the largest ones that, you know, the things that we think of as obviously parables. But what I'm trying to do is give us a term to capture something of the, the intuitions of the average person who reads and say, I know what a parable is, right? You know, people who read the Bible, I know what a parable is. And you show them and they can sort of say, right? This is probably where they're, I mean, it's a sort of codification of what their instincts are grabbing for, you see, and saying this is almost certainly what they have in mind, but let's not forget that in fact the category that we ought to have is probably much broader than that. If we're thinking in terms of what the New Testament times thought of, this whole area of figurative sayings more broadly, or even pithy sayings like Proverbs, is a broad category that, that everything is lumped into. So let's not rigidly separate off these larger narratives, but if you want a term to designate them, you can use the word parable. What I also want to draw your attention to is for the purpose of religious or ethical persuasion. If you think about it, figurative narratives could in principle be used for many purposes, right? And there is something about Jesus' parables that is obviously um, has bite, has function, is going somewhere in terms of uh, religious and, and uh, ethical persuasion. So I think that's a useful thing, although it's a minimal thing, right, because we've still got many questions as to exactly what Jesus was doing with these. But it's a, at least a minimal thing which helps to stake out, let's look at what the, the, this particular narrative is doing. A number of things came up over the break that I probably should have said, one of them being uh, Paul was asking me about this business of religious or ethical persuasion. Persuasion is, is too narrow, undoubtedly, because it can be rebuked, it can be convict, it can be, and the results aren't necessarily to bring everybody around to your side. <laughs> and uh, there, there is an, uh, um, Jesus' parable, some of his parables that um, are directed to the scribes and Pharisees are you know, it's not simply persuasion in a in an narrow sense. And I don't want to say that this, even if we broaden out persuasion to conviction and other things, that that's the only or even the main purpose, because there might be, you know, a cluster of purposes, but certainly it's a purpose, and it's a purpose which is, I think, prominent enough to, um, to incorporate into the definition. The other thing I meant to say and didn't is, that this whole uh, thing about allegory may possibly have been tied in with the fact that I'm told was a known thing that there was a period in, in literary critical studies when allegory was looked at as an inferior mode of communication and was despised. So to call something an allegory was already to uh, utter a pejorative judgment about its literary qualities. Uh, uh, I think people have sort of gotten over that, uh, at least to some extent. But obviously, I'm not intending that right. <laughs> uh, and 
I think there may be something to it that some allegories, Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress, and he wrote one, Holy War, and some other ones, uh, they are in their own ways uh, brilliant. But there is, because of the mass of detail, there's a bit of artificiality about some of it. Uh, that you're mainly meant to see through the story to the point of the story. And the story is at points almost just a prop for the real thing. And uh, whereas, as I mentioned, C.S. Lewis, Narnia stories, the stories have, their, have a vibrancy of their own. They're not at all artificial. And at the same time, by my definition, they're still allegories. <laughs> Uh, so, so I'm intending to use allegory in a fairly broad sense, you see, to include anything from, from The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe to Pilgrim's Progress. Uh, and uh, there may be, you know, quite a variety and, you know, the literary judgments uh, as to its uh, effectiveness may be uh, varying too. So we're, uh, it's just, uh, it's a convenient hook that is not meant to, uh, you know, to, to to make a lot of specific pronouncements about uh, the quality of the product. <laughs> All right, now having said that, let's talk about persuasive impact. That's point six uh, on your outline. 